السلام عليك زين الأنبياء السلام على بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن والاه We have now reached uh, session three and in this session we're going to trace the journey of the afterlife and there's going to be quite a bit of reading uh, in this session and really the purpose here is one primarily of reflection that we understand that the greatest travel the travel to the hereafter is what awaits us and um, inshallah ta'ala uh, Imam Ghazali covers this very comprehensively over a lot of pages and so we're not going to be able to look at all of that but we're going to take uh, selections from uh, the various chapters and his various expositions on the journey of the afterlife. And um, we'll begin with his exposition of the true nature of death. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that bless us to return to him subhanahu wa ta'ala like his loved ones do, like the righteous folk that he is that blessed in this world and the next. And so he, we begin and he says, Know that men entertain many false and mistaken notions regarding the true nature of death. Some have imagined that death is extinction, and that there is to be neither resurrection nor concourse, nor any consequence to good or evil, and that man's death is as the drying up of plants and the death of animals. This is the opinion of the atheist, the mulhidun, and all of those who have no faith in Allah, and the last day. These beliefs, and he mentioned some others that are unsound, are all unsound and far removed from the truth. For intellection, together with the pronouncements of the Quran's verses and of many traditions, testifies that death singles a simple alteration of state, and that after leaving the body, the spirit survives to feel either torment or bliss. The significance of its separation from the body is that its act, it acts no longer within it, since the body is no more subject to its dictates. Now, the members of the body are the tools of the spirit. So all of our different limbs, our arms, legs, and so forth, are tools of the spirit, which, when put to use, enable it to strike with the hand, to listen with the ear, to see with the eye, and to know the true nature of things with the heart, the heart here is merely another expression for the spirit, which is able to learn things without the medium of any tool, which is why it may independently feel pain in the form of sadness, misery, or sorrow, and pleasure in the form of various kinds of happiness and contentment, none of these things having any link with the members. So he says, death signifies the incapacitation of the members in their entirety, all of which are the tools of the Spirit. And this is what we see. We define death as the departing of the Spirit from the physical body. And that animate body that you saw moving and that you saw those limbs in command of the intellect doing what they were told to do, when the spirit leaves the body, we no longer see this. 
And so then he goes on to say here um, that after discussing the meaning of death is that the human being changes then from two different perspectives. And the first is in relation to the one that was previously mentioned, the, the control that the body has over its limbs and that those limbs being under the command, if you will, of the spirit or the heart or the intellect. And he says the second lies in the fact that upon death there stand revealed before him certain things which were never disclosed to him in life in the way that things may be revealed to a man who was awake which were concealed from him during his slumber. For people are asleep and when they die they awake. This very famous statement of Sayyidina Ali bin Abi Talib. The first thing to be revealed to him or unveiled to him, shown to him, is what? His good works and his evil works, such as will benefit or harm him and which have been inscribed in a book folded away in his innermost heart from the perusal of which he was distracted by his worldly concerns. When these concerns are cut away, his actions all stand unveiled before him so that he is dismayed by every sin which he beholds, so much that he would fain plunge into the depths of hell in order to escape from this misery. It is at this time that he shall be told, sufficient for you today is your own soul as a reckoner. So, this takes place just as we transition from this world into the next world. And all of this is unveiled when his breathing ceases and before his interment, that is, before he is buried. And then after this, that Imam Ghazali goes on to say, Know that after every believer dies, there is unveiled to him of the mightiness and great majesty of Allah, something in comparison to which this world is no more than a narrow prison. I mispronounced that word first time, and it's actually pronounced, it actually means jail, and it's actually pronounced similar to jail. That jail, even though it has, has a G there, which means it's a prison. He is like a prisoner in a gloomy chamber from which a door has been opened onto a spacious garden, stretching as far as his eye can see, conveying, containing device, diverse trees, flowers, birds, and fruit, and cannot therefore wish to return to the gloomy prison. And so then he quotes a hadith of the Prophet and says, The believer in this world can be likened to a fetus in its mother's belly, which cries when it emerges, but when it sees the light and begins to suckle, no longer wishes to return to its former abode. So it is with the believer who suffers at death, but who, when brought to his Lord, no more desires to return to the world than a baby wishes to return to its mother's belly. And this is, of course, for the believing servant that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed. So if we think about as we enter into the world, and that obviously now as we experience the world, we don't want to go back to the belly of our mother for the believing servant. After they see the expansiveness of the hereafter, they no longer want to return to the world. And then we are told about other realities of this intermediary realm, the barzakh. And Abu Ayyub ibn Sa'di relates that the Prophet ﷺ said, When the believer dies, his soul is received by the people of mercy from Allah's presence, just as the bringer of good tidings is received in the world. 
Grant your brother some respite, they say, that he may rest, for he was formerly in great distress. Then they ask about what such and such a man had done, and how such and such a woman had occupied herself, whether such and such a man woman had married, until when they ask him about a man who had passed away before him, to be told he died before me, they say, truly we are Allah's, and truly unto him is our return. Then he has been taken to his mother, the abyss. In other words, that we learn that the people in the Barzakh ask, as people come to them, about people in the world. And as even though that they are in the world of the grave, the Barzakh, the intermediary realm, they are aware of some of what is happening to the people while they are still here in the world. And then Imam al goes on to discuss the grave. And so that the next stage as we approach our death and as we take our last breath and the soul is removed from the body, the next stage, once we're buried, begins, and this is the first stage of the afterlife, and it is the stage of the grave. And it is also known as the barzakh, the intermediary realm. And we will all remain in that, uh, in that uh, realm until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands Israfil to blow the trumpet the second time when we'll all be resurrected. And we don't know a lot of the deep. We know what we need to know. We know a lot about the Barzakh. We know what we need to know. But it is a realm that we will remain until that we will be raised and that then stand before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when that we will go on to talk about these stages and all of the different events that happen uh, that in the afterlife. And so that Ka'b al-Ahbar that he says, when the righteous bondsman is laid in his tomb, he is surrounded by his righteous acts, such as his prayer, his fasting, his pilgrimage, his engagement in that the holy war, and the charity he used to distribute. Then the angels of chastisement approach him from the direction of his feet, but are told by prayer, get back from him, you have no authority over him. For, though, for upon those feet he stood in yet length for the sake of Allah. Then they approach him from the direction of his head, but fasting says, You have no authority over him, for in the world's abode he thirsted at length for the sake of Allah. Next they draw near to him from the direction of his trunk. But pilgrimage in holy war say, Get back from him, for he exhausted himself and wearied his body when he accomplished the pilgrimage in the holy war for the sake of Allah. No authority do you have over him. Then they approach him from the direction of his hands, but charity says, Back. Retreat from my master for how many act of charity issued from those two hands to fall into the hand uh, to, to fall into the hand of Allah while he acted only for his sake. No authority therefore do you have over him. Then he shall be told, Rejoice, good you have been in life and death. Next the angels of mercy come and spread a heavenly cloth and resting place out for him, and his grave is widened around him for as far as his eye can see. A candle is brought from heaven, and from it he has light until Allah resurrects him from his grave. So what's important here is that we know what it is that we do in this world, we will see as we pass. And then our good deeds are what will bring us solace while we're alone in the grave. They will intimately that be our intimate companion. And again, the purpose of mentioning this is to prepare ourselves for the meeting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and for that moment that you and I will all face. And then we know that one of the uh, great things that happens in the grave is the questioning 
of Munkar and Nakir. And to further the point that was previously mentioned, that Sayyidina Muhammad Ali said, before every man that dies appear his good and his evil works, he fixes his gaze upon the former and averts it from the latter. So what deeds are we putting forth so that what we see? That just before, that just as we die, and while we're in the grave. And that Abu Huraira said that the Prophet said, When the believer draws near to death, he is approached by angels bearing bunches of sweet basil and a silken cloth performed with musk. They draw his spirit as a hair is drawn from dough. As a hair is drawn from dough, comes right out. And is told, O soul at rest, come forth satisfied, well satisfying to the grace and generosity of Allah. And when his spirit is drawn forth, it is set among that musk and that sweet basil, and the silken cloth is folded over it, and it is sent to Iliyin. When the unbeliever draws near death, however, the angels come to him with a piece of black cloth in which there lies a glowing coal, and pull his spirit forth violently. O vile soul, he is told, hating and hated emerge to Allah's wrath in his chastisement. When his spirit is taken forth, it is laid upon that hissing coal, and the black cloth is folded over it and is taken away to Sijin. The souls of the believers will be in Iliyin and those of the disbelievers in Sijin. And so, depending upon how we act, depending upon our level of faith, will between, be between these two different states. And what we hope is, is that we will believe and do acts of goodness and our state will be the former and that our souls will be taken from us the way that a that hair is pulled out of dough. Um, and then Imam Ghazali has a, a couple chapters on the states of the dead through, which have been known through unveiling in dreams. Uh, we're going to skip over that. I highly encourage you to read that because uh, he, uh, he, he, there's a lot of benefit in that. We might uh, point out a few of those in the final session. Sorry, one chapter, chapter 8. And then... He goes to the second part of this book where he's now going to list all of the different events that are going to transpire. So up until now, that he, we've had a number of chapters about that death, the reality of death, the merit of remembering death, how to remember death, short hopes, and why we should have them in avoiding procrastination. And that Amul Tarif, inshallah ta'ala, next session is going to that cover the blessed return of the Prophet to Allah Taala. So these first three sessions have been a little bit jalali. They've been a little bit majestic. They've been a little bit, a bit they've been fear inspiring. And inshallah ta'ala, the last three sessions that we will have on the blessed return of the Prophet the Shafa and intercession of the Rasul and then the final session about gazing upon the noble countenance of Allah Ta'ala and the overwhelming mercy of our Lord are supposed to be that hope inspiring. And the reality is as believers we need both. We need both fear and we need both hope. We need both fear and hope. And we need to have a balance of them like birds' wings that help that bird fly and stay afloat. This is very important because there's protection in fear. Because when you fear something, you avoid it. And true fear, fear that comes from the heart, propels you and motivates you. Just as we also need hope. Hope is that also a motivating factor. And the highest motivating factor of all, though, is one of love. 
And having love, though, doesn't negate both having fear or having hope. Is that then that fear that you have is a fear associated and tied to love. That hope that you have is a hope that is associated and tied to love. But still, fear and hope have their place. And we need to know that how to balance them in our own lives. So the first thing that Hujjit al-Islam Al-Ghazai speaks about uh, in, in relation to um, the afterlife, uh, that after the stage of the grave, is the blowing of the trump. The blowing of the trump. And in Arabic this is called nafkhsur, or you could also call it the trumpet blast. And so he says that that quoting Muqatil, the trump asur is none other than the horn, the qarn, that Israfil alayhi salam shall put his lips to it as though it were a trumpet. The mouth of the horn is as the breadth of the heavens and the earth. He is looking upwards towards underneath the throne, waiting for the time when he will be instructed to deliver the first blast. When this is sounded, so there's two blowings of the horn, the first time that it's sounded, and then he quotes a verse, all that are in the heavens and the earth shall fall down in a swoon. That is, every living thing shall die because of the greatness of this terror, saving those whom Allah wills, who are the angels, Gabriel, that Jibreel, Mikael, Israfil, uh, and the angel of death, Azrael. That uh, then he shall order the latter to take away the spirit of, Israf, of Jibreel, then that of Mikael, then that Israfil, then shall he issue his command to the angel of death, who in turn perishes. Now, and then, after that first blowing of the horn, all created beings shall abide for 40 years in the intermediary realm, okay, which is the barzakh. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shall quicken, he brings Israfil back to life, and commands him to, to deliver the second blast, the second blowing. And as he has said, exalted is he, then shall it be blown again, and lo, they stand beholding. They shall be on their feet, watching the resurrection. So, that this is a reality, and it will transpire in the time that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wills it to transpire. And then there'll be 40 years between the first blowing of the horn and the second. And then, this is when the resurrection will take place. And so the next thing that Imam Wazali talks about is the Ard al-Mahshar wa Ahlu, the land of the people of the concourse, the land and people of the concourse, or the Mahshar, the gathering, the place of gathering. So Imam Ghazali says, Then see how after the resurrection and arising, they shall be driven barefoot, naked, and uncircumcised to the land of the concourse, the gathering which is white and perfectly smooth, and upon which is to be seen neither unevenness nor any protrusion. You will be unable to behold upon it any prominence behind which a man might hide. Instead, it is a single uninterrupted plane devoid of any irregularity, to which they are driven in groups. So it's completely flat. There's no way to hide behind anything. All glory, therefore, to him who shall unite from the provinces of the earth all creatures irrespective of their diverse natures, driving them on with the initial blast which shall be followed by the succeeding blast. The rajifa, the initial blast, is the first, that anaf al-ula, 
while the succeeding blast, radifa, is the second, yani the blowing of the horn. It is right that men's hearts should be trembling that day, and that their eyes should be humble. The Messenger of Allah said, On the day of arising, mankind shall be gathered upon an off-white land like pure flower, on which no sign has been left by anyone. So, this horn is blown the second time. We are all resurrected, and we are driven to the mashar. And we are driven to the place of gathering where we will then be judged by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So then he has a chapter where he talks about the araq or the perspiration. And so he says, Next contemplate the crowding and congregation of all created beings, whereby the dwellers of the seven heavens and the seven earths, including the angels, jinn, men, demons, beasts, carnivores, and birds, shall come crowding together at the standing place. The sun will shine down upon them with redoubled heat, transformed from her former mildness, and shall be brought down two bows length above the heads of the nations. No shade shall there be upon the earth save that cast by the throne of the Lord of the worlds, which only those who have been brought nigh unto him may enjoy, who have been brought close unto him may enjoy. Thus shall they either take shade under the throne or be exposed to the sun's blazing heat, and their sorrow and misery shall grow with its rays. So let's think then about the hadith where the Prophet ﷺ told us about the seven people that are under the shade of the throne. How important is it to be one of those seven people? Or to be that have multiple traits from those seven people that our Prophet ﷺ informed us of so that we can be under the shade of the throne of Allah Ta'ala. May Allah Ta'ala bless us all to be under the shade of His throne. Then they press against the other, forced by the intense crowding in the entanglement of their feet, to which is added that their great shame and fear of being disgraced and humiliated at that time, when they shall be presented before the Almighty of Heaven. And part of what benefits us in reflecting upon these realities is that it puts into perspective how it is that we should act here in this world. When you have second thoughts about doing the right thing or not, Think about this, this moment when you're standing before Allah on the day of standing, on the day where we are going to be judged for what we do and our actions are going to be shown before His creation. Make the right decision based upon that reflection. How do you want to be in that moment? And then do the right thing in this moment while we're here in this world. The sun's burning and the heat of their breath conjoin with the conflagration produced in their hearts by the flames of shame and fear. So twofold, that the fire-like nature of remorse and regret and shame that's in their heart and the heat of the sun. And it leads to perspiration, pours forth from the root of every hair until it flows upon the plane of the arising and rises over their bodies in proportion to their favor with Allah. It reaches to the knees of some, to the loins of others, and to the nostrils of others, still while some well nigh vanish into it. And then he quotes a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, On the day of arising, people shall sweat until their perspiration reaches seventy spans deep upon the earth and engulfs them so that it reaches their ears. Nasallahu ta'ala, assalamu alafiyah. But with all of these different events, there's things that we can do here in this world 
And so Imam Ghazali says, you should know that all the sweat which you do not shed through some effort in Allah's way, such as the pilgrimage or struggle, visibilillah, the fast, standing and night prayer, regularly fulfilling the needs of Muslims and sustaining hardships and enjoying what is good, enjoying what is good and forbidding what is wrong, will be driven forth by your shame and fear on the plane of the arising, thereby prolonging your suffering. In other words, the more we tire ourselves for the Allah's sake in this world, doing good deeds, struggling for His sake, subhanahu wa ta'ala, rectifying between people, laboring and doing good work, studying hard, putting our knowledge into practice, helping other people, all of the different things that we do here in this world. And that whether we actually physically sweat from that or we actually tire ourselves doing that, the hope is by doing that here in this world is that we will be sweating less because we'll have less remorse and we'll be under the shade of Allah Ta'ala's throne in the next. So we should think about that now. What are we doing now in this world to prepare for that moment? And then he has a chapter where he talks about the length of Yom Al-Qiyamah, of the day of arising. And he quotes a hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu that says, how shall you fare when Allah has gathered you together as arrows are gathered in a quiver? So arrows, a quiver is what holds the arrows. Straight arrows, you gather them together and you put them in the quiver. For 50,000 years and does not look at you. La ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah. And then another hadith, the Prophet says, By him in whose hand lies my soul. It shall be shortened for the believer until it becomes briefer for him than the prescribed prayer which he used to perform in the world. So every single one of us will experience Yom Al-Qiyamah. But for some people it will be briefer, briefer than the prescribed prayer that was performed in this world. And for others it will be up to 50,000 years. And so he says... Know also that when one's waiting for death in this world becomes lengthy as a result of one's great acts of fortitude in the face of one's desires, then one's waiting upon that day will be of especially brief duration. And encouragement again. How we live now manifests in the next world. How we live now manifests in the next world. And that the how we're waiting, all of us are waiting for death whether we are aware of it or not, that what is important is, is that we consciously be waiting for death and be spending our moments that we have here on earth in a way that is pleasing to Him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So then he has a section that, I, that I'll leave for you to read where he talks about the, uh, the details about the day of arising, its various calamities and its names. And it's important uh, that we reflect upon this. And then he talks about, has a section on the Musa'ala, which Sheikh Abdul Hakim translates as the Inquisition, i.e. the questioning. After these circumstances, O unfortunate one, you should next meditate upon the questioning which shall face you orally without any intermediary. You are to be asked regarding the great and the small, even every jot and tittle. For as you linger in the torment of the arising with its perspiration and the violence of its great events, there shall descend from the provinces of heaven powerful and harsh angels who are mighty and vast in form. They have been ordered to seize the forelocks of the workers of unrighteousness and to bear them to their place of presentation before the Almighty. 
every single one of us will be waiting on the day of judgment for our questioning. This is what he says. So picture yourself, O unfortunate one, with the angels grasping your upper arms as you stand before Allah, exalted as he, as he that demands of you, did I not bless you with youth? How did you employ it? Did I not grant you long life? How did you spend it? Did I not bestow wealth upon you? Whence did you come by and how did you expend it? Did I not ennoble you with knowledge? How did you act by what you knew? La ilaha illa Muhammad Rasulullah. All of us will be standing before Allah Taala, and we'll be asked these questions. Did I not bless you with youth? How did you employ it? Did I not grant you long life? How did you spend it? Did I not bestow wealth upon you? Whence did you come by? Yani how did you acquire your wealth? And how did you expend it? Did I not ennoble you with knowledge? How did you act by what you knew? We should think about this very carefully. And in an age where the vast majority of people around us have turned away from deen. And that many of those who are interested in deen oftentimes like to listen to that speeches that are a type of that uh, infotainment where they're benefiting but they people also like to be entertained we live in an age where people have grown up with video games and movies and they expect the same thing oftentimes with uh, lectures and things of the nature of that nature but these books are the books that we really have to study we should benefit from in as many ways as is possible, and acquire as much beneficial knowledge as possible. But these types of works are the most important works of all that we study regularly. Because these types of works will that teach us what it is that we really need to be doing with our life. And we've said this before, but it's worth repeating. You and I have to overcome the monotony the potential boredom that can afflict any of us when it comes to learning our deen and worship. We've got to overcome that. And what really matters on the end of the day is the time that we spend praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the time that we spend that supplicating our Lord to Barakotara, the time that we spend fulfilling His commandments and avoiding His prohibitions. What really matters is our state of heart. What really matters is how sincerely we are worshiping our Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so, um, this is all about standing on the Day of Judgment. And then he has this section where he goes on to say, We seek refuge in Allah, therefore, from being shamed before the congregation of mankind by the testimony of our own parts. However, Allah, exalted as He has pledged that He will screen the secrets of the believers so that no other man shall come to know of them. A man once asked Ibn Omar what he had heard that what he had heard the Messenger of Allah sallallahu say in private. The Messenger of Allah he answered sallallahu used to say, "One of you shall come close to his Lord until he takes him under his protection. He shall say, "You did such and such a thing." To which he replies, "Yes." And you did such and such a thing. He says, and he replies, "Yes." Then he declares, "I concealed these things for you in the world." And today I forgive you them. Ya Rab, all the sins that we've committed, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to that veil our sins in this world and forgive us of our sins in the next world. Ya Arhamur Rahmin. But then this becomes important in terms of how we interact with other people. And I'm not even going to go into trying to contextualize this. Yes, it has its context. 
But this is a reality in the way that our Prophet ﷺ that wanted us to believe it. The Messenger of Allah ﷺ has said, Whosoever conceals the faults of a believer shall have his own faults concealed by Allah on the day of arising. From this we know that it is hoped that the bondsman who has faith will conceal the faults of others and tolerate their shortcomings within himself without wagging his tongue and mentioning their faults or speaking of them in their absence in a way that they would find disagreeable were they to hear it. Such a commendable practice is deserving of a corresponding reward at the arising. Suppose that one had concealed the faults of another. And then he's going to go on. So the blessing of veiling our brothers and sisters. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, There's not one amongst you, but that Allah, the Lord of the world, shall question him without any veil or intermediary. And he said, ﷺ, Each one of you shall stand before Allah with no intervening veil. He will ask him, Did I not grant you of my blessings? Did I not give you wealth? And he will reply, Yes, surely. Then he shall say, Did I not send an emissary unto you? And he will reply, Yes, surely. Then he will look to his right and see only hell, and then look to his left and see only so. Let each of you ward off hell, even if only with half a date. And if you have none, then with a kindly word. Ibn Mas'ud said that there is not one among you that shall not be alone with Allah. Just as one of you is alone with the moon on the night when it is full, O son of Adam, he shall say, What beguiled you with respect to me? O son of Adam, to what use did you put your knowledge? O son of Adam, what was your response to the messengers? O son of Adam, did I not stand watch over your eyes while you looked at what was forbidden you? Did I not stand watch over your ears? Thus he shall continue until he has enumerated the remainder of his organs and limbs. Why does Imam Ghazali speak about that so much? Taqwa. Listing for it from his early books and books like The Beginning of Guidance. The Taqwa of the Limbs. And then after this we have the Mizan. The Scales. And he says, Next, be not heedless of the scales. Think upon the flying of the books to their left and right sides. For after the inquisition, the questioning, mankind shall be in three parties. One party will be composed of those who have not a single good deed to their credit. Another party is composed of those who not with not a single transgression to their discredit. But a third party, which constitutes the greater part of mankind, still remains. They have mingled good works with ill. And although... It may not be plain to me, it is plain to Allah, which of them are those whose good or evil deeds predominate. Allah, however, demurs from not giving them to know of this, that he may manifest his generosity and pardon and his equity and chastisement. So the books of scrolls and books so the books and scrolls which contain the good deeds and evil deeds fly up and the scales are erected and all eyes are upturned towards the book shall they fall into the left scale or the right then they look to the scales themselves shall they tip in favor of the evil actions or in favor of the good this state is fearsome indeed and dazes the minds of all creation and as said, each descendant of Adam we brought on the day of arising made to stand before the two sides of the scales to which an angel has been assigned. Should his balance be heavy, the angel will call out in a voice heard by all creatures, so-and-so is joyful, so that he shall never be sorrowful again. However, if his balance should be light, then he will call out in a voice heard by all creatures, so-and-so is sorrowful so that he shall never be joyful again. And when the scale containing the good deeds is light, the guardians of hell approach, bearing hooks, rods of iron, and attired in garments of fire, and take hell's lot to hell. Nas'Allah, Tabarakat'Allah, As-Salama, Wa'afiyah.
and we're going to continue on for a short period of time. The next subject is Al-Khusama' wa Rad al-Madhalim Translated as The Adversaries and the Restorations of Rome And that what this is really about are the people that we've wronged here in this world and how they will come on Yom Al-Qiyamah and asking for their rights be given to them and if we've wronged someone they will come and they'll take our good deeds and if we run out of good deeds that we will then take from their bad deeds and so Imam Ghazali says here know that none shall escape the peril which is the scale save the man that called himself to account in this world so he actually mentions this in this chapter um, and then relates it to what preceded and then it's a segue into what he'll then discuss so he says that know that none shall escape the peril which is in the scale save the man that called himself to account in this world and weighed up his deeds, statements, ideas and hours in the scales of the law as Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu said call yourselves to account before you yourselves are called to account weigh yourselves up before you yourselves are weighed up so again the more we take ourselves to account here in this world the that lighter that our that, that the more that our scale of good deeds will outweigh the scale of the bad deeds on Yom Al-Qiyamah that the more that we do that now here in this world Allah will not join between two fears the more that we fear Allah here in this world and we avoid wrong and do what is right the more safety that we will have on Yom Al-Qiyamah and so that this is a reality that we have to be aware of. And he says, A man's weighing of himself can only consist in his sincerely repenting of every sin before he dies, and in remedying his inadequacy and discharging his obligation towards Allah, and in righting the wrongs that he has committed grain by grain. This is where he transitions into restoration of wrongs. And in reconciling himself with all those who were injured by his tongue, his hands, and the bad opinions which he harbored within his breast. He should set their hearts at rest so that when he dies, not a single injustice or obligation will remain to his discredit. Such a man will enter heaven without reckoning. If, however, he should perish before making reparations for his iniquities, his adversaries shall surround him, seizing him by the hand, the forelock, or the throat. While one of them says, you wronged me, another says, another says, you insulted me, yet another, you mocked me, and another, you mentioned me to my discredit in my absence, another, you were my neighbor, but treated me badly, another, you had dealings with me, but cheated me, and another, you sold something to him, but defrauded me, and concealed from me the defects of your merchandise, and another says, you lied regarding the value of your goods, and another, you saw that I was in need, and you were rich, yet you did not feed me, and still another you saw me wronged and were able to put an end to that wrong but instead you humored my persecutor and failed to project, protect me he's mentioning examples there and so this is something we should take very seriously because on the day of judgment this is a day of justice Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only forgives us unless that people for, if people forgive us and so we need to think about this. Anyone that we've wronged in any way, we should make up for that now. And if that person has passed or we no longer have access to them, do uh, give charity and donate the reward to him. Recite Quran and donate the reward to him. And that say a lot of supplication 
that Allah and, and make a lot of supplication to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that will make that person content with you and forgive you of your sins on the day of judgment. And inshallah ta'ala the hope is is that if someone does what they can, if they're not able to reach that person, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, will make that person content with him. And this is a, a little bit of a long narration and we'll uh, we're, we're, we're almost to the end of this uh, but I, it's so beneficial because it, it really is a narration that motivates us to restore wrongs now. It, Anas related that Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa that uh, related of Allah's Messenger, while the emissary of Allah was seated once, we saw him laugh so heartily that his eye teeth were, her eye teeth were visible. What has made you laugh, O emissary of Allah? Asked Omar, may my father and my mother be a ransom. And he replied, I laugh because of two men from my nation who shall kneel in the presence of the Lord of power. One of them says, oh my Lord, grant me retaliation for the wrong for which I am owed recompense from my brother. And Allah exalted he says, give your brother that in which he, is, he was wronged. O Lord, he replies, none of my righteous works remain. Then Allah exalted he says to the man that, that says to the man that made the demand, what shall you do with your brother, seeing that none of his righteous works remain? He replies, O my Lord, let him bear some of my burden in my stead. And the emissary of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, wept as he said, Truly that shall be a mighty day, a day when men have need of others to bear their burdens. Then he continued and said, And Allah says to the one who made the request, Lift up your head and look at the gardens. This he does, and he says, O my Lord, I behold lofty cities of silver and golden palaces wreathed about with pearls. For which prophet shall they be, or for which saint or martyr? And he says, they belong to whomsoever pays their price. O my Lord, he says, and who possesses their price? You possess it, he replies. And what might it be, he asks. And he says, your forgiveness of your brother. O my Lord, he says, I have forgiven him. Then Allah exalts he says, take your brother's hand and bring him into heaven. Then Allah's emissary, sallallahu alayhi wa said, Fear Allah and make reconciliation amongst yourselves. For Allah reconciles the believers with one another. La ilaha illallah. And one of the beautiful things that Sayyidi Sheikh Samuel Nas mentioned is that if you demand your rights, subhanAllah, that means that you have to wait on Yom Qiyamah for the restoration of those rights. But if you forgive, you'll be able to move to paradise quicker. Why won't you want to raid on the plane, on the, on the plane of judgment? Forgive everybody. And the reward that you get for partying people is even greater. And you won't have to stand as long on the day of judgment. What a blessing. And then he goes on to speak about the Sarat. And the Sarat is it's called the Traverse, which is a bridge stretched over the gulf of hell, sharper than a sword and thinner than a hair. Whosoever has in this world kept upright upon the straight path shall bear lightly upon the Traverse of the afterlife and will be saved. The more we adhere to the Surat al-Mustaqim in this world, the more that the quicker we will move on that path. But whosoever deviates from uprightness in this world and weighs down his back with burdens and disobeys his Lord shall slip upon taking his first step on the traverse and shall go to perdition. Now meditate upon the terror which shall alight upon your heart at the time when you behold the traverse in its slenderness and when your eyes fall upon the core of the inferno beneath you as your ears are assailed by the moaning and raging of hell. Nas'Allah Ta'ala As-Salama Wal-Afiyah then he mentioned the passage of us which shall be in proportion to the light which men have received. So our 
traversing the, the traverse, or crossing the traverse is in proportion to the light that we've received. And some shall cross like the blinking of an eye, others like lightning, others like clouds, others like shooting stars, others like a swift stallion, others shall walk rapidly until he who has been given light upon his big toes shall cross crawling on his face, his hands and his feet, pushing one hand forward and holding on with the other, clinging with the foot and dragging the other while hell assails his flanks. Thus he will progress until, until he is finished. And when he is done, he shall stand up over and say, Praise be Allah, he has granted me something never given to anyone else, for he has delivered me from hell after I had beheld it. Then he shall be taken to a pool at the gate of heaven where he bathes. So that's the Sirat. And then that he speaks about the intercession, which is session four of Ustad Amjad. And so I won't go into that because he'll speak about the intercession. And then after the intercession is the Hawd, the blessed pool or basin of our Prophet And according to some scholars, every Prophet has a pool. But he says, know that the pool, the Hawd, is a great dignity which Allah has conferred solely upon our Prophet a description of it is included in the traditions. It is our hope that Allah, exalted as He, will grant us to know of it in this world and to taste it in the next. For one of its qualities is that whosoever drinks of it shall never thirst again. And inshallah, we will be of those who come to the hold of the Prophet and we will witness Rasulullah and his blessed family and the great companions and his great inheritors throughout the centuries at this blessed pool of our Prophet and the Prophet said about his pool, my pool stretches for the distance which is between Aden, Aden and Amman of Al-Balqa. Its water is whiter than milk and sweeter than honey. Its drinking vessels are as the number of stars in the sky. Whoever drinks one drought from it shall never thirst again. The first people to reach will be the poor from among the immigrants. And Umar al-Khattab asked, Who might they be, O emissary of God? And he replied, They are the wild-haired, dusty-clothed one, dusty ones, who do not marry, marry women of pleasure and for whom no portals are opened. And then Sayyidina Umar ibn Abd Aziz, when he heard this, the great caliph declared upon hearing this tradition, By Allah, I have married women of pleasure. Fatima bint Abdul-Malik, and portals have been opened for me. May Allah have mercy upon me. I have no choice but to cease anointing my head with oil so that I become wild-haired and not to wash the garment I am wearing until it becomes soiled. And he was the that leader of the believers. He was the Khalifa. And that was the way that he wanted to implement that to be of them. And inshallah ta'ala that he also quotes the hadith here. For every prophet there is a pool and they shout boast with one another about which is reached by a great number of people. They shall boast with one another about which is reached by a great number of people. It is my hope that I shall be the one with the greatest number of all. Alhamdulillah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made us from the ummah of our Prophet and that I'm hoping that Amul Tarif can mention something, a special intention that we can make in relation to coming to the Hud and so that we can be from those who are close to the Rasul and drink from his blessed hand 
and inshallah ta'ala that our death will be a death of the great believers who are close to him subhanahu wa ta'ala and our grave will be like the graves of those who are close to him subhanahu wa ta'ala and the resurrection will be like the resurrection of those who are close to him ta'ala our experience inshallah on yawm al-qiyamah on the day of judgment will be like those who are close to him and beloved to him subhanahu wa ta'ala may we all be under the shade of his throne ya Allah may we enter into paradise without reckoning may we cross inshallah ta'ala traverse like the blinking of an eye and like lightning ya rahman and that we may be with those whom we love that in 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 the barzakh and on yawm al-qiyamah inshallah ta'ala at the hawd inshallah in jannah and so inshallah ta'ala the only thing that remains is to discuss the description of hell and the description of paradise we're going to be focusing in these last sessions inshallah i'll leave for you to read the description of hell which is important uh, in the book and in the next three sessions we will that be focusing on that which inspires hope for us so that we can inshallah ta'ala that be with the ones that we love and to prepare now to return to Allah ta'ala in the very best of ways loving to meet him subhanahu wa ta'ala may Allah ta'ala give us tawfiq and open up all doors of goodness for us and to fill our hearts with the love of him and the love of his messenger love of his family and his and his companions and his blessed inheritance throughout the centuries wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa alayhi wa sallam wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen